Chris Davis 247 tattoos are the new mnemonics. Scott Boris nautical analogies are tragedies. Keep them honest. Vroom vroom. Here's your primer. On Beef Boys, Baseball's End, Roger Angel and Super Pretzels, Williams Astadio and Mike Trout Hypotheticals, Waiting for the Perfect Bat from a Volcanic Eruption, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Effectively Wild Introduction. Hello and welcome to episode 2011 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Riley of Fangraphs and I am joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? I need you to help me out here. So, mm. April 19th. A 24-year-old right-handed pitcher named Mason Miller debuted mm-hmm. for the Oakland A's. Okay, yes. He was ranked 98th on the Fangraphs preseason prospects list. Mm-hmm. On May 2nd, a 24-year-old right-hander named Bryce Miller mm-hmm. debuted for the Mariners. Yep. He, I believe, was ranked 83rd on the Fangraphs preseason prospect list. Somewhere right around, around there. there yeah. yeah. Sounds about right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then, and then, May 23rd, a 24-year-old right-hander named Bobby Miller mm-hmm. debuted for the Los Angeles Dodgers. He was ranked 33rd on the Fangraphs preseason prospect list. Are there more Millers to come? Have we exhausted the supply of 24-year-old right-handed pitching prospects named Miller? It's too many Millers. They're all on West Coast teams. You can't spring so many Millers on me in the span of a month and expect me to be able to keep them straight. Well, I have bad news, Ben, which is that according to the 2010 census, Miller was the seventh most common surname in the United States. (laughs) So, granted... The prevalence of that name might, you know, it would change over time. Almost mm-hmm. certainly it would change over time because, you know, the, the country shifts. Yes. And, uh, you know, we have we have different folks coming in with different names. Yeah. I mean, same with the Effectively Wild podcast. Sure. Some, some of them have the surname Miller sometimes. Yeah. But I regret to inform you that while they are not top 100 guys on the board, at oh, this no. very moment, we have <laughs> more Millers. We have a Jake Miller, who's a starting pitcher in Cleveland's organization. Is he a twenty-four-year-old right-hander? <laughs> yeah. N- n- now he is. Um, he is still a couple of years off. He's in okay. high A at the, okay. at the moment, I believe. And yeah. um, I think we have him based on a, just his twenty-one-year-old left-hander. Okay, right. I can, that's I can, can keep him straight. You can live with. You can live with that. You can mm-hmm. live with that, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, he's an A ball at the moment. Mm-hmm. You know his. Sort of chalk 40 man timeline, I think, puts him on track f- for us to see him sometime in 2025. Then there's a Tyson Miller, mm-hmm. um, prospect with the, the Brewers. And, you know, he has seen, I believe, some big league action yeah. in his career, right? Yes, yes. 27 year old right hander. <laughs> right. And, and in fact, might be back with the, the big league team right now, maybe, right? Mm-hmm. Recently recalled, perhaps, perhaps. And then, Ben, just to continue to gum up the works, we we also have an Eric Miller, mm. uh, also a pitcher for for the San Francisco Giants, huh. and he has seen time this year at Double and Triple A. You know, so a guy who might at some point make his way to the big leagues in this very season. So I don't. I don't think you're going to get a reprieve, you know. Yeah, it it's doesn't like every, sound like it. 
it's like every time there's a new Ben writing about baseball, I'm like, you you all need to have a conference, you know, amongst yourselves. You need to come together as the collective Ben mm-hmm. and determine um, a, a better way to differentiate. Because I don't want to keep calling you and or Ben Clemens other Ben. Yeah. That's, you know, that, that denotes that there's a prime Ben and then there's other Ben. And you're both important Bens, you know? Yeah. Depends I, I, on the context. But yeah. They're yeah. just too many Millers. I, we've almost doubled the total, I think, of Millers in the majors currently Millers just over the past the month or so. We're going to need to rename our Meet a Major Leaguer segment to Meet a Major Miller just so I can keep these guys straight. And they're all good pitchers, yeah. too. I mean, yeah. Mason Miller's hurt now, but right. yeah, that's too bad. Mason and Bobby seem to throw extremely hard. Mm-hmm. Bryce throws hard by the standards of any other era, but right. <laughs> not quite so much by yeah, this it, era. Although it has the highest spin of any fastball, it seems. So it gets a ton of rise and it's unhittable and he throws it a ton. All these Millers are really good. So I got to figure it out. I got to keep the Bryce's and the Bobby's and the Mason's all clear. And they're all at least on different teams. So that helps. <laughs> but <laughs> Well, and, you know, for a while it was fine because you had a Mason and a Bryce. Those are very different first names, right? Yeah. Far, but now you have a, a Bobby and a Bryce. So you have two mm-hmm. Bs. You know, we're doubling up on... We're doubling up on bees. Although, like you said, you know, different teams, all of them, different teams. Mm-hmm. And, um, but you also have some, you have some overlap in terms of the coast, but also for, for two of them, the division, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It didn't help that Bryce Miller made his major league debut against in a Mason, game that Mason Miller was against starting. Mason Miller, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's, it's a troubling time. You know, it's a challenging yeah. time. I, I continue to be amazed that they don't have a system similar to like the Screen Actors Guild, where once there's someone with that name in the union, mm-hmm. there needs to be differentiation. And it, is that fair? I mean, I don't yeah. know. But on the other hand, would you want to be the other Julio Rodriguez? Like, really? I mm-hmm. mean, I think that you'd want a, an, you know, a middle initial in there or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, no, there needs to be some sort of solution. I, I yeah. know that I think in the LPGA, they have done with some women golfers who had the same name. They added numbers to the end of the name. They so added that you could, numbers? <laughs> yes. That's, I'm sorry. I'm not. I I reject that as a solution. That seems that seems well like we need something because uh, I, the multi, the Millers are multiplying so yeah it's like I'll the trouble with tribbles yeah tribbles 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 yes tribbles. Tribbles. all right I'm gonna keep so, saying tribbles <laughs> I have just a couple things to point out before we get to a fun interview that's fun, gonna yes. take up most of this episode yeah. we are talking to David Raymond the Maestro of mascots, just the the source. I mean, we yeah. have talked about mascots a lot lately. They keep coming up. We get listener emails about them. Yeah. And we are not experts. We're enthusiasts, but we have now we gone to the expert. Wrong opinions, but <laughs> yes. they are not expert opinions. <laughs> right. Right. So we are talking to an expert, the expert, David Raymond, who was inside the suit for the Philly Fanatic. He was the original fanatic performer yeah. slash best friend, as they are called. And he has had a hand in designing Gritty, and he consults for many teams, and he started the Mascot Hall of Fame, and he Mm. trains potential mascot performers. And we will get into all of that, both the high-level mascot insights that he has, but also the ground-level inside-the-suit experience.
experiences that he can share. <laughs> so <laughs> just want to point out the Rays lost a game 20 to one. Yeah, they sure did. It, you know, I, um, yeah, 20 to one, Ben. <laughs> That'll take a chunk out of that run differential, right? Yeah, and how about that? I mean, at this point, you got to look at them and be concerned about the division, right? Not about the playoffs, but about the division. And not because of this one game. Ten of those runs were allowed by position player pitchers. There were multiple position player pitchers. It got out of hand. But overall, though, they have kind of cooled off. I mean, they're 35 and 15, so they have not continued the torrid pace. Meanwhile, the Orioles have been great. The Yankees have righted the ship and have been hot lately. Mm -hmm. Again, every team in the AL East, as we speak, is 26 and 23 at worst. So the the Rays now have a three-game lead in the division on the Orioles. You know, it's like because the AL East is so strong, even with the incredible start and the wins that they banked, they haven't really opened up a lead. And yeah. as we've discussed, uh, they're vulnerable. I mean, they're getting guys back. They'll get Glasnow back, but they have lost a lot of pitchers to long-term injuries. And gosh, if anyone who has been playing above his head and over his skis and whatever expression we want to use <laughs> doesn't keep that up, they just they have not built up a buffer. You would think that a team that is 35 and 15 would have built up a bit of a buffer, and they really have not. So it's going to be kind of a tooth and nail fight the rest of the way in that division, even though it seemed early on that the Rays had sort of staked their claim. Yeah, I mean, I think we're right to say, like, hey, those wins are banked, you know, and if there are wins against, like, lesser competition, it all counts the same. And that's all true. But, like, they should have maybe thought about even winning more. Like, they should have <laughs> yeah. like, consider winning more of consider the Consider yeah. winning more. You know how you've already won, like, m- m- much? M- <laughs> maybe win more. Mm-hmm. I don't think that them cooling now really says a whole lot other than, like, they are kind of injured and the rest mm-hmm. of their division is good and, like, they're playing better teams now. But also, yeah, it's tighter than it should be. It's sort yeah, of— you'd think. Right. And I think that the people actually, Ben, I have a, I have a mild take. I don't mm-hmm. think that this is particularly controversial. It's just common sense, really. I think that the um, the teams that should be the the most stressed about the situation in the East isn't even any of the teams in the East. I think it's all the other sort of okay teams in the American League, right? Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. I again, that's obvious, you know. Sometimes, but sometimes you have to say the obvious thing, mm-hmm. and I think that if. If you're a team in the American League, the threat level is at midnight, you know? Yeah, like right. if you're the if you're the Astros or the Angels or the Mariners or really not that that's the list because um <laughs> the central is yeah. pretty bad. But um mm-hmm. you know, if you're one of the three teams sort of stacked close behind um in the West, you have to be really one annoyed that the Rangers are working, you know, I bet you're Mm -hmm. like, I, you were all supposed to break, not just DeGrom, all of you, you were all kind of tenuously held Mm -hmm. together by, you know, tape and spit, but no, like they're good. Like we should probably talk about Evaldi at some point because that is looking like quite the good little signing um, Mm -hmm. that the Rangers pulled off there. My goodness, he has been. Leading the major leagues in innings pitched. Yes. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he has been just, and like they've been good innings, you know? Yeah. So that 
helps when they're good, mm-hmm. <laughs> when they're good innings. And you're like, hey, oh, DeGrom is short. You need good innings. And so then they've been getting those. Um, but yeah, if I were one of those other teams, I'd be like, oh, crap. Because, I mean, it's possible that all of the wild cards will just come from these. Like, is that whole division going to be? Yeah, it could happen, right? Yeah, so it just it goes to show the early season storylines and hot streaks and slumps. It's not to say that the Rays have have suddenly tanked or something. It's just that they didn't actually separate themselves by enough that that necessarily meant that they could just cruise to that division title. To be clear, only Atlanta has higher playoff odds than the Rays do. So they're not in danger of missing the postseason or anything. I'm just saying you would have thought, given how great they started, that, okay, they could just claim this division victory now. And nope, not in this division, in any other division, perhaps, but not this one. So speaking of the run differential, I was going to bring that up because, yeah, the Rays still on top by quite a lot, even after that negative 19 performance. They're plus 104. The Rangers are second at plus 79, not even that far behind. But then you have the Cubs at plus 52, just ahead of Atlanta. And we talked briefly about the Cubs the other day and how they seem to have been quite unlucky when it comes to outscoring their opponents and yet not having that translate to wins. They are now, I think, two and 10 in one run games and their base runs record is eight games better than their actual record. So they have underperformed by much more than on the other team in that respect. And now they're they're kind of fun and exciting these days because Mervis is there now and Morel is back, right? And Morel hits homers every single day. He's hit homers several games in a row. He has nine homers in 12 games and 52 plate appearances. Hosmer is gone after Hosmering for the start of the season. That was kind of one of those, well, I don't know what we expected sort of situations, right? And he was clearly, I think, a stopgap and a placeholder and he held the place for a little while and now he has moved on and has been replaced by some exciting younger players who are perhaps performing better. So this team, it's like you could talk about the Cardinals' uh, terrible start to the season and we certainly did. They are now 22 and 28 and only five games back of the Brewers in the Central. Uh, The Cubs, by run differential, have been the class of that division, even though they're trailing the Brewers by four and a half games and the Pirates by a game and a half. So I don't know what to make of that sort of situation. But a lot of it was like the standings are all topsy-turvy at the start of the season and the teams we thought were good have been bad and vice versa. And it's uh, coming back to the pack just a little bit as it typically does. And the Brewers, have you seen the state of the Brewers rotation right now? I'll sum it up with this transaction. They just signed Julio Tehran, oh, who yeah. has has not picked pitched in they the majors. Not the best, yeah. No, yeah. he has not pitched in the majors since 2021, and that was only briefly, right? So, yeah. to sign Tehran, I mean, that kind of tells you how desperate they are for pitching, and you wouldn't have thought that that would be the case because uh, their rotation is perennially their strength and was expected to be again. But almost their entire rotation is on the injured list right now. Their injured list is a rotation. Brandon Woodruff is on the IL. Wade Miley, Eric Lauer, Aaron Ashby, all these guys are on the IL. And meanwhile, Corbin Burns, the ace, has not been Burnsing so much. It's uh, kind of concerning. I don't know exactly what's going on with Corbin Burns these days. By Burns standards, he has been quite subpar, not striking out as many guys, allowing lots of dingers, etc., more walks. So that is kind of concerning too. 
their 23rd in starting pitcher war, their 27th in bullpen war, their 23rd in WRC+. So you might wonder, why haven't they been terrible? I think it's two things. One, they have a great defense, maybe the best in baseball so far this season. And two, their pitchers have been bad, but they've had great timing. They've been kind of clutch or lucky, clucky. They have the second highest Fangraph's clutch score of any pitching staff. They have the second highest strand rate or left on base rate of any pitching staff. And they have the best TOPS plus in high leverage situations, meaning that they have allowed a much lower OPS in those high leverage moments than they have overall. So the fact that they're in first after basically having their entire rotation decimated, more than decimated, I guess that's encouraging in a sense, but also discouraging when your entire rotation is injured and you're yeah. resorting to siding Julio Tehran. So that division is wide open, I guess, is what I'm saying. Right? Yeah. We've we talked about the AL Central. I think the caliber of play is a little higher in the NL Central, yeah. right? But the separation is not really. It's Mm-mm. There's a six-game separation, yeah. as we speak, between first and last place, the Brewers yeah. and uh, the Reds. So we were talking last time about how the Guardians have started slow, but they're not that far back. And you don't even have a Royals in the NL Central, right? There's no truly terrible team right now. Well, I mean, there's no, like, uh, truly, I guess, like, standout team either. But, yeah, no. I don't—man, the Royals have only won 15 games. Maybe we should be talking about how about the Royals are— more than yeah, we are. It's the, a different flavor of bad than the A's because the Royals mm-hmm. are kind of trying. So yeah, that they seems... Have mm. The Rays record inverted. <laughs> the Royals do. Yeah, <laughs> they do. So, How about yeah. that? Yeah. Last thing, I want to focus our effectively wild career resuscitating powers on Trey Turner. I oh, want yeah. Trey Turner to be the next guy who's like, hey, okay. look. Trey Turner's not hitting, and then a week later, Trey Turner has been the best hitter in baseball since we mentioned that. I don't know if it works when it's consciously directed like that. Right. I think it it has to be legitimate. It has to be like, hey, like this guy hasn't been that good. Like, are we kind of worried about it? Or uh, we're not talking about him anymore. It's like, oh, hey, we we haven't talked about Bryce Harper in a while. Oh, okay, Bryce Harper's back to being one of the best players in baseball. Or Aaron Judge, uh, he looks like he's back to being the old, merely very good or great Aaron Judge. Oh, okay. Now he's back to superstar Aaron Judge hitting homers every day. Trey Turner, I'm not actually concerned about, I don't think. So I don't know if I can muster the what's wrong with Trey Turner kind of energy Mm. that maybe we need to bring in order to activate our powers and to bring back the old great Trey Turner. But he really has been quite bad. In fact, by his own admission, he has sucked. That is the way that he put it. He said, I've sucked. (laughs) So. Part of that is, uh, of course, uh, the expectations of the contract and everything. I don't know whether that's playing into his struggles, but that is why he is taking pains to point out that he has sucked and, and basically trying to ingratiate himself with fans or, or, you know, if fans are disappointed by what they've gotten out of Trey Turner thus far, he wants to let them know that they are. he is also disappointed. But they're in the middle of a game as we're recording, and his uh, slash line's down to 248, 293, Oof. 376. That's a 78 WRC+. Plus. Yeah, he has only stolen six bases, which is, I guess, roughly the pace he was on last year. So you'd think maybe he would be running more because everyone is, or yeah. you could be, but he's not so much. Yeah. So 
he was the hero in the WBC. So maybe it's like, hey, I had a good year. You know, everything else is gravy, but probably not. He also wants to perform well with the Phillies. And I guess he's one of the factors behind the Phillies slow, but not super surprising start. They're kind of in the, do we need to fire the manager and and have new manager magic (laughs) happen again stage? I don't think that you can, um, you can deploy that card again so fast. You know, I think that you have to hold it in reserve until, you know, uh, until another year or two, really. Probably. I, I feel bad because it seems as if, as evidenced by his quote, like, He's a self-aware guy. Mm-hmm. And you don't want to keep talking about it. It's like he knows he's not yeah. playing well. Um, but it, it is a thing that kind of needs to be remarked upon, right? Mm-hmm. So you're you're in this uncomfortable period of observation with it. We're like, oh, good. But it it's not going great. And I, I don't know if it's not going great in a way that I'm, like, super concerned about. Like, yeah. in terms of it p- portending um, a collapse that is... Mm-hmm. Um, one he can't recover from, but Jay's writing about it for us, and it's like, well, you gotta write about it. It is a thing to write about, but also, oof, sh- yeah, no, and and it's not like he's uh, the batted ball quality has been reassuring, right? right? Yeah, because no. he has, if anything, overperformed <laughs> that. The expected weighted on base is down to two seventy seven going into Wednesday's games, and. The Woba was higher than that, so yeah. if anything, the ball's been bouncing okay for him. It just uh, he hasn't been hitting it very hard. Yeah. He's still super fast; like he has a long track record. I, I almost feel like it's too easy to focus our powers on Trey Turner because I think of him as one of the best players in baseball, and it's not like he's had a extremely long period of sort of fading into the background or anything. He was a superstar in the WBC just this spring, so. I imagine that he'll be just fine, but uh, it has been a disconcerting and disappointing start to his Phillies career. Yeah, it hasn't it hasn't been the best, you know. <laughs> All right, so let's take a quick break here, and we'll be back to discuss everything about mascots with the authority on mascots, David Raymond. How can you not be pedantic? A stat blast will keep you distracted. It's a long slog to death, but the sure to make you smile. This is effectively why. This is effectively why. This is effectively why. Well, I was going to start this segment by saying that David Raymond has forgotten more about mascots than we'll ever know, but he remains such a master of mascots that I wouldn't want to presume that he's forgotten anything. What Jane Goodall is to chimps, David Raymond is to mascots, except he hasn't just studied and helped preserve them. He's also designed them. He is the original best friend of the Philly fanatic, which, and I hope I'm not puncturing any illusions here, means he was inside the suit for the first 16 years. He's the founder of the Mascot Boot Camp and the Mascot Hall of Fame, the author of the book The Power of Fun, a frequent consultant to teams of all kinds on mascot matters, and the visionary behind more than 100 mascots, including Philadelphia Flyers mascot slash internet legend Gritty, whom he helped create. David, welcome to Effectively Wild. Oh my gosh, I got, I'm aligned with Jane Goodall. 
<laughs> yeah, has anyone that's ever amazing. Made that comp before? <laughs> I no, I'm I'm thrilled. I've got, I got I need the clip, and and so have people need to read it when I'm introduced. <laughs> <laughs> well, you you live among the mascots. Uh, you study their habits. You're an expert on their behavior. I figured it fit right, and they're an interesting sort of life form that uh, you've helped bring to our attention. I think so. W- would you describe yourself as Gritty's designer or dad, or do you think of Gritty and the other mascots you've had a hand in designing as children or pets, or is it more of a Dr. Frankenstein, Frankenstein's monster situation? Oh, I, you know, I, I guess to be honest, it could be a little tiny bit of each of those, but I, you know, truly from a, from, from a matter of truth, I, f- I feel a piece of all of those. I do feel like they're children to a certain respect, but like children, I'm a collaborator. As a, as a father, I'm a collaborator. I collaborate mm-hmm. with my wife. I collaborate with my my kids, and we we work together to find solutions. and And truly, um, the fanatic and gritty on kind of two ends of of my career, um, bookends, if you will, uh, hold together a, a process that in the beginning with the Phillies it was just done well because of enlightened leadership, and with gritty it was a, a deconstructed process that. If the client will trust me and follow, to all apologies to Sixers fans, uh, of which I am, (laughs) to trust the process, uh, and that they are the ones that pull the meaningful tissue together that helps create, you know, this living, breathing brand extension or a character brand. We we do like to stay away from mascots. or the term, uh, it, mm-hmm. uh, to some it, it may seem like just semantics, but for us it's it's this discussion of value. And so when you have the insurance company that's saying no jingles, no mascots, they're 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 talking about the low end of the continuum. We're we're trying to build this, you know, this living, breathing brand extension or or character brand as we said it. And there's nothing wrong with mascots in terms of a title. It's I embrace it. Uh, certainly for SEO, <laughs> I embrace it. But um, but I do. I, it's bigger than that. It's it's more. I think it's more important than that. I, I feel the work that characters do, both the ones that I've been involved in, and then there's many good ones that I have not. Successful characters that I've not are, are really making their communities better places. They're they have this enormous ability to distract uh, from you know from their typical struggles in life, um, and you know we need that. So. So I see them as as little uh, links into a, a big chain that that can make the world a better place. So I, without jumping, uh, you know, when you started it, you said I was like James Goodall. So <laughs> yeah, I, right. <laughs> I have to I have to give a level of importance to the business as well. <laughs> yeah. Well, when you've consulted with clients, I know you've at least at times called it a mascot intervention, and that's sort of what we have you here today for to do a mascot intervention for us because mascots have come up on the podcast so many times. And what do we know? So we have gone straight to the source and the expert here, not to design a mascot or a character, although I guess maybe we should sidebar about whether Effectively Wild needs to develop its own mascot slash character, but we've just gotten so many questions questions about it and you are the authority and I will start with that big picture question you know there was a profile of you that the New York Times did a couple of years ago in New York Times magazine and it mentioned in there that the flyers had been resistant to having a mascot or character as some organizations still are and noted that's the stance the flyers took for decades anti-mascot, regardless of how much it was losing them in merchandise revenue and earned media and community outreach. 
Obviously, they quickly saw the power of that with Gritty, although that, I think, exceeded all expectations or precedents. But how do you quantify the impact of a mascot on economics or morale? If a team is on the fence about whether we should have one, do you present data? Do you have hard numbers that say this mascot is worth X millions of dollars to the team? Or is it more of a fan feeling sort of squishy factor? Oh, good, good. Squishy factor. That's good. I, I'll, I'll use that. <laughs> Some of the mascots are squishy. Title but... of our, our next research uh, environment. Yeah. It, no, it's it's really both. So it depends on who's asking. I mean, mm-hmm. if, if it if the pushback is coming from um, you know from the CFO, then I'm going to tell him, listen, uh, in less than 48 hours, um, Gritty earned five billion dollars of media impressions. And that transferred into earned media, and, and I'm I'm going to get this wrong, but it's somewhere uh, around hundreds of millions of dollars of of um, earned media. So those can be translated into value. All you have to do is say, well, what does it cost to put an ad? And then you fill in the blank. You extrapolate what it costs to run that ad, and then you see where your story ran, which is which is above and beyond in some cases where ads are even being seen. And there's a tremendous amount of of earned media value to that, uh, media impressions. Uh, you're in this business, so so you understand that. So financially is absolutely a, a defining factor, but a much bigger and more valuable one is to tell them, give them the scenario of what if, so usually the, the, you know, the CMO, the chief marketing officer, what if I could give you something that could go out wherever you wanted it to go out at any particular time, no matter how good or bad the situation may be, uh, or difficult in terms of life, the situation is you can send your brand out. Your brand will immediately make that environment better. It will distract people, entertain them, and deliver the best commercial you could ever create. And the people want to snap a picture with your brand. They want to hug your brand. And they're going to keep that photograph or that moment in their minds as a time of great joy. What value as a CMO would you give that to? You, you, would, you would be crazy if you say, yes, let, let me do that. How do I do that? Or if you could pick up your environment, put it on a, on a flatbed and drive it around for everybody to see and to actually see what they get to do and where they get to go and what experiences they will have, how important would that be for you? That's truly what a character brand can do. And that is a much more valuable than uh, than traditional revenue. You know, we like to call it new revenue when we create a program that they haven't created around, you know, a mascot or a character brand that's been built. They whether it's a sponsorship or whether it's something that they're doing that uh, helps a current sponsor buy in for more. That that would be new revenue. But you know the unrecognized revenue is really revenue that can't be calculated in dollars. Um, and, you know, and I guess, you know, I guess we've heard that in iconic phrases of priceless um, in, in other uh, marketing campaigns for other products, banking, etc. But truly a, a moment of joy that people will continue to revisit to remember that makes them emotionally and physically happier when they do that. And if your brand is a part of that, well, then you're, you are going to be a brand that people want to get in touch and and to connect with and then, of course, buy from. Well, and in order to construct those moments of joy, right, and realize all that good revenue, I imagine a lot depends on the design process because 
characters or mascots are such funny things. They have the capacity to delight, but they also have the ability to be just monstrous when they go wrong, right? And I think we can all think of a couple of examples of that. So can you walk us through what what do you advise teams and brands to think about? What are some of the sort of tricks of the trade when they're trying to create a character that is going to have that sort of indelible mark on its fan base? Well, we we get the, we we talk about the elephant in the room right away and and remind everybody, especially in today's world, that the immediate response will be negative, and sometimes overwhelmingly negative. Specifically, let's say in a city where where the fanatic has lived and breathed for forty three years prior to when the Flyers decided to do it, they're skeptical. They're very bright and intelligent fans in terms of play on the field, or in their case, the the play on the ice. And it's going to be negative because those people are the loudest and they're going to think like, OK, you're kind of tr- going to trick us and, and, and you know, don't look behind the curtain and see the fact that we haven't been successful on the ice or uh, on the diamond or, or wherever. So we say it's going to be negative. So start there and understand that. But that's OK, because any a response with passion is, is a, a good response. What you don't want is no response, because when you have no response, you haven't done anything. So we say the way to get to be able to answer the questions from the negative response, because they're all going to say, what were you thinking? Why does it look like that? This looks like it's going to eat children. Stephen King would love this. You said it was going to attract children, and we hate it. It sucks, and on and on and on. Well, that's all well and good if you don't have an answer to that. So have you seen our players? Do you know how tough hockey is? Don't they look like they haven't taken a bath in a while? Many of them don't shave. Some people don't have all their teeth. Do you know how tough and rough and gritty this sport is? And oh, by the way, did you notice he's black and orange? He was a troll living under the stadium or, or the, you know, from the spectrum to the Wells Fargo Center and all the other iterations between. This character got so frustrated with the changes that he just wanted to watch hockey that he started coming out at night and defacing the new elements they were putting in the arena. And he was caught. And then when he was caught, of course, his, his eyes were big and bulgy and disembodied pupils because he hadn't <laughs> seen the light of day. He's a troll. He's been living in the, in the darkness. And then they said, but wait, look, look at him. He's, he is the physical representation of, of, of kind of who we are. And he loves and knows every element of our history of the Flyers back, you know, back in the 70s when they started. And of course, the two Stanley Cups back to back. And he's, he's like us. Don't you notice that? Okay, well, that makes sense. But he still sucks. I hate him. And, <laughs> and, but over time, when other people in Philadelphia started to make fun of this crazy idea, the Philadelphia fans kind of rally around themselves and say, wait a second, he's our ugly, not yours. Uh, so when the Pittsburgh Penguin was you know, sent a, you know, a dismissive tweet, you know, okay, laugh out loud, LOL. And Gritty shot back, sleep with one eye open tonight, bird. And that was the defining moment. That was the tipping point. (laughs) That that was the Malcolm Gladwell tipping point. Like, yeah, yeah, he's ours. Shut up. You know, if, if we don't like him, that's fine. But you just be quiet over there. You take Crosby and go leave us alone. And that turned into then fodder for late night comedy and then it and it shook off and i think the height of my understanding that this has gone way beyond all expectations was when i got a call call from public radio in canada wanting to know what my comment was for the flyers and i'm doing air quotes now allowing an image of gritty to strangle trump at an uh, antifa 
you know, uh, disruption. And I said, I have no comment. <laughs> I got nothing to do with that. I, I, we created this for Flyers fans. We created this for hockey fans in Philadelphia. And what the Flyers did, I think, brilliantly was they didn't fight people taking the image. They couldn't. They, could, they didn't have enough lawyers to, to go after people. And the people that they knew doing it who had asked permission they had some control over it, but the fact was they just wanted to let it go. If it went outside their sphere of influence, which was the Flyers, the tri-state area, Philadelphia, hockey fans, and if the rest of the world hated him, no problem. You know, he's our guy. And if anybody else decided to have an, a, a, an opinion or a problem with him, we could always answer and just say this was for kids by kids. It was introduced in front of 300 elementary school kids at the Please Touch Museum. And the Please Touch Museum is the, tries to, uh, and I love this, I love this mission, to show how important play is and for everyone, not just kids. And, you know, the play in that day was the birth of Gritty. And so the process is about authentic storytelling so you can answer the negativity. But you have to believe in it. You have to invest in it. You have to treat it as it's a living, breathing entity. And you can't waver, you know, because through attrition, the grizzled, uh, veteran Flyers fans, or you can plug in for your fans, how you'd want to describe them, through attrition, they're going to go away. And your job is to consistently try to adapt with what's going on in the universe to connect young people to your environment and say, look, there's more than just hockey going on here. This is a good time, which is exceptionally valuable because those are the moments of joy you're building. And then what they do is when they come into your environment, they have a good time and they're not necessarily so um, locked in with the actual sport, they start through osmosis, they start to soak it in. And by the time they get to be 12, 13, or 14, they have their favorite player. And not, in, not in a sexist realm, but, but young girls will grow up and see some of these guys playing a particular sport and say, oh, he's cute. You know, I've got a poster of him. And young boys may be thinking about whether they can play. And of course, you can flip this around with, you know, women's sports as well. You have some attraction other than the actual sport itself. You have attraction to the athlete. You have attraction to their skill sets. This, if you just shoved a five or six year old in there and said, look at this, look how great that is. Look how good they are. Look how good she is. Look, how, look, look what type of a, um, a slap shot he has. It, the kids are gonna yawn and say, I wanna go home, mom. I wanna go home, dad. You know, so you gotta, you gotta suck them in and then you're gonna build a broader base. And, uh, and in the case of the Flyers, you now have a generation already started that doesn't know the Flyers without Gritty. And, and that was what the Flyers wanted. And because of their brilliance, uh, they succeeded. And I was a collaborator in that effort. And, and we followed that process and they believed in it. And so much so that I got nervous when I started to see the design that they were leaning towards, even though I liked it. I, was, I went to the boss, Sean Tilger, and I said, you know, this really does look pretty, pretty frightening. Are you, are you sure you want to do this? Hey, you told us. <laughs> you know, and then I'm stuck. When somebody says, you told us that this had to be our story and, and the imagery had to be ours. And I said, you're right. You're right. And I backed off. And, you know, I'm glad that I didn't, you know, push for what I liked because it's not my story um, and it's not my character. Were there in-depth discussions about whether Gritty could tweet or should be allowed to communicate in that way? Because, of course, mascots are mute canonically. Of course, also they have thoughts and feelings, uh, very strong emotions, <laughs> which they express. But 
not typically with words. So I wonder whether there was uh, any uncertainty about whether a, a mascot could communicate that way. Again, again, a great question from from the mascot aficionados that you and Meg are, um, <laughs> that you've thought really deeply about this. I appreciate that. Um, it you know, social media gives an opportunity to give them a voice to help them define a personality. Uh, it, through words, and I think it's great to have a character that is traditionally live in, in, and muted when they're live. But you know, they, you're, like you said, they have feelings. I mean, if you're treating it like it's a living, breathing entity, then it has feelings and it has a perspective. And if you get somebody that's good with comedy and who really understands who the character is, then you have some brilliance that would come out in words. So when the Flyers did this, they were always thinking that Gritty would have a, uh, an account. I mean, he. You know, his first picture is him on skates like, I'm here. And that was the one that started, you know, getting slandered very quickly by the trolls and haters. <laughs> but they, um, oh, great. Glad you're here. We, you ha- we hate you. <laughs> no. So, uh, but there are, that's a collaboration as well. So there, um, w- one of the things that I am very proud of is the performer that is now uh, the best friend of Gritty is, mm-hmm. uh, is a, a good friend of mine. I've known him since he went to school. And college when he was telling me he wanted to do this and he's exceptionally talented and in in costume he's an amazing physical performer but his social media on some of the characters that you might not know were really good and then he hooked up with two uh, young women at the flyers who were equally as good as he was and they collaborated and boy oh boy i defy anybody to watch gritty's feed on whatever whatever platform he happens to be on and not continue to watch for a half an hour and go, oh, crap, I got to get back to work. It's, <laughs> it is so wonderful, just as Benny the Bulls is. Um, the Fanatic has, has done a great job. Fanatic was being very, very coy and felt that he was low on technology. The Galapagos, of course, did not teach, you know, those amazing species about social media. So the Fanatic <laughs> stayed away from for a while, but now uh, the Fanatic has kind of uh, jumped full in uh, because of his buddies being so good and he wanted to communicate with them. And I just, um, I love it. And as you alluded to, all mascots seem to exist somewhere on a cuteness to creepiness spectrum. And some of them are so unsettling that it swings all the way back around and they become incredibly endearing, even though at first glance you might be somewhat disturbed. But I wonder whether there's focus grouping that goes on during the design process. Do you show them to children and see if they laugh or cry? <laughs> yes. <laughs> most of my most of my uh, larger clients, so so. Big, big corporations, I become a, um, a voice in the room. I, I'm always in the room where it happens, uh, and, <laughs> and which is exciting. Of course, if you're a Hamilton fan, you know that that's all he wanted to do is be in the room where it happens. And, and so in the, my bigger clients um, will, will give me a platform to be able to be heard. But I'm, I'm a, a voice in the room. So uh, focus groups are really important. So the, the, only, the only thing that I've try to have my clients understand if they go that route is number one, they, they need a professional company. They need to invest in a focus group company that will do it in, uh, absorb the data in, in the correct way so you don't get misinformed. And then focus groups should not be a decision maker. It should be a lever that is put on the scale to weigh against other things that you believe that you know and that you want this to be. Because focus groups can give you a wide spectrum of, of input. And you're not talking about thousands of people. You're talking about maybe, maybe 50 people over the course of a day or two where you bring them in and you, and if it's done professionally, they all get 
you know, the environment, the, um, illustrations or the storytelling, they all get it done the same way and they're all asked the same questions in the same order and they gather the data. Um, and I think that's very helpful, but it, it, it should not be a decision maker because if it is, then you're, you're driven by, you know, the, the whims of folks that come in on a particular day and, and give you some feedback. It just should be one other thing that you use. And I've seen the ones, my clients that win in, in other words, create a character that really is sustainable, lasts a long time, and, and is doing good things in their community and doing good things for their sport, that they pushed aside some of the feedback that they didn't feel was helpful, but the process was worth it. So that's my only um, warning to clients is don't have people come in and just expect they're going to tell you how they feel, and that means that you're going to have to take care of all of those feelings. You In life, you just can't do that. You you have to kind of absorb all the people you trust and say, give me this input. And then ultimately you have to make the decision about what, what's right for you. And generally those decisions are made when you have input and some collaboration. Those are the ones that then end up you know, being a resistance to the negativity. I have what is likely a slightly uncomfortable question. It's a <laughs> thing I've wondered about when it comes to mascots for my entire life observing them, particularly when you look at some of the the variations on existing characters that emerge as they try to introduce new and fun variations, right? So you start with Mr. Met. Well, then Mr. Met gets Mrs. Met, right? And you look at her and she is curvy. And I'm just wondering, and you can tell me if this is too strange of a question, but as teams are talking through sort of the ideal and end product that they're going to put out there, a character that they can sustain, are they forced to think about the potential desirability of <laughs> those characters? Because I imagine that you're trying to dial in a very particular thing when it comes to the ultimate look that the characters occupy. And, you know, you might end up with a couple people who have um, uh, uh, interesting predilections, shall we say. So I, I, I just, I have to ask, because we have wondered aloud about this on the podcast before, how cognizant are teams and corporations about, about that concern when it comes to like, you know, Mrs. Met or um, the, the Reds have a baseball headed gal uh in their rosy yeah. in their <laughs> right in their um you know cast of characters and so i i just wonder like are they <laughs> are they uh, <laughs> assessing how for lack of a better word horny the mascots are <laughs> <laughs> well i think you know you've just you've tapped into something that has all kinds of uh moments that come flooding into my brain about about being careful and and in the world today oh my gosh it, 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 being careful uh is is certainly um kind of a warning shot against everybody's bow when they do this but you have to keep remembering that it's that this is where the silly wacky furriness um comes in that that's really ultimately what it is the reason why you have a mr met and a mrs met is i just think it's hysterical um, and then I want to ask, well, who is Mrs. Met? <laughs> is it Mrs. Met? Is it Ms. Met? What I mean, you know, I don't know in it, how how it works. And that, just that thought alone, and what you're doing, Meg, is is really funny because we're thinking, right? We're th and we're getting you and the rest of us to think about it. And and there's a little nudge, nudge, wink, wink, and a laugh and a giggle. And I think that's where some of the 
you know, the adult connection to mascots comes in. Um, and then, of course, we do have a group of folks that really enjoy uh, dressing in furry gear. Um, and we try to distance ourselves from the industry from them a bit because we'd rather not have the tawdry predilections, as you mentioned, kind of, kind of leak into what is really created for, for kids. Um, but on a serious note, yes, you are, you are thinking about all of these things. You know, we, we don't, uh, we don't want to offend. We, uh, we want to embrace and we want to connect. And so here's the, here is the overriding benefit of all of the little missteps, hiccups, or fears you could have is I'll always show a picture at our mascot interventions. And I'll show a picture of the fanatic. And he'll be in front of a, a section of Citizens Bank Park that's probably holding, I don't know, a thousand people. And it's a high resolution picture from the fanatic's back as he is, in essence, standing in a nonverbal pose of welcoming. He has his hands over his head open. His palms are, are, are semi-faced to the crowd, but also facing the palms. It's, it's a traditional nonverbal welcoming celebratory pose. And if you zoom in on that high resolution picture, you will see old, young, men, women, um, heavy, skinny, people who of course are identifying in any way that they're choosing to identify. But there is one constant in most of the whole picture is they're all wearing Phillies garb, except for a, a rogue Mets or Yankees fans. We just ignore them. And they are part of the family. You know, in the fanatic's mind, they're part of the family. So, so all of those things, and they're funny, and I, and, and I get the question, Meg, but, uh, you know, mascots in general, the good ones, and there's not, a, there's not tons of good ones. There, there are a few of really great mascots that are going to be around for hundreds of years after we're gone, and they are in the business of unifying. And, and they just do it naturally. It's not like one of the things that we designed them to do. They just do it because in the character's mind, if you're wearing our colors, come on in. Give me a hug. Let's take a picture. That's what I love seeing about characters. They're doing bigger things. They're, they're, they're unifying cities. They're, um, you know, toning down some rhetoric because, you know, they just have a single sole purpose. And that's all they see and all they feel about is that purpose. Um, and, they, um, and they do those great things regardless of, of the silliness that, um, you know, we could have <laughs> as adults could have fun with it. Right. That's an incredibly generous interpretation of my question. Thank you. <laughs> yes, that question may have been stimulating in, in more than one way. Meg, <laughs> off air, if we can, if you want, if you do have a tendency to share an adult beverage, I'll be happy to go deeply into that subject if you want. Okay, <laughs> well, okay. effectively, wild after dark, I guess. But <laughs> so, some mascots are very anthropomorphic, like Mister and Missus Met, and some are not. Some are obviously identifiable as a particular animal, and maybe if you're a team that uh, has the name of an animal, then you're going to have a mascot that looks like that animal. But there are many mascots that are kind of unclassifiable, right? They're just, they're difficult to describe. Some are genderless or at least of indeterminate gender. Many are of indeterminate species or planet of origin. The, the fanatic is a strange looking character, but but a bird, right? And others, you can't even say what he, she, they, it are, right? Because uh, Slider, for example, who's a, a member of the Mascot Hall of Fame, the Guardian's mascot, I don't know that anyone knows what Slider is exactly. I think Slider's creator described Slider as a big fat furball, and maybe that's all you need to know. But when clients come to you, do they usually say, 
we want a moose, we want a bull, we want a bear? Or do they just say, hey, show us what you got and we, we, we don't even need to know what it is exactly? It's a fabulous question. But but for the record, the fanatic is a flightless bird from the Galapagos Islands. Right. So uh, and, and that was created after we recognize, and this is, you know, the Phillies just did this so well unknowingly, they didn't think of storytelling until people kept asking. Well, you know, there was even an, an Olympic character called What's It? Because they couldn't figure out what it was. So, you know, it, it, it is an issue. Uh, but I think most of my clients will start, you know, we have this mascot intervention, right? And they've invested, you know, they're committed, they've invested. I come in and invariably in many cases, well, what's it going to be, Dave? What's it going to look like? And I, and I say, honestly, I have no idea. <laughs> and that's when the CFO goes, why did we hire this guy? <laughs> and, I, and I go, wait, 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 wait. I don't know, but you actually do. You just haven't been asked the right questions. And that's what the intervention is about. Is And so if they're saying we want, we're thinking, and I go, great, let's put a pin in that because that's, that's third or fourth in our list of priorities. The first one is to understand the difference between a mascot and a character brand, and we, we have a little bit of a presentation for that. And then, and then we talk to people about, well, who are you as an employee? Where did you come from? Uh, talk about your ownership. Uh, talk about the history of the company. Uh, let's talk about your community. What's urban myths, legends, uh, uh, favorite sons and daughters? You know, Mays- Maysville, Kentucky is the famous home of uh, Mrs. Clooney. And George goes back to the middle of nowhere. And I love Maysville, by the way. It's a beautiful little town, but it's a tiny, tiny little town. And George Clooney is a favorite, um, you know, son of Maysville, Kentucky. Still goes to see his mom uh, there regularly. So we want that. We want that, that you know, connective tissue. And, and you do these three whiteboards, you know, one for the sport, one for your organization, history, people, and one for your community. And you start throwing stuff up on those whiteboards, phrases, events, moments in time, history, great stories, funny stories, you know, these myths, legends, and you throw them up on the, on the boards and you try to have an interconnected piece of those three. And then you get someone who understands how to write and you say, write a paragraph about a personality that embodies some of these things. Where did they come from? What were their struggles in life? How did they find us here? Or have they been here all this, their lives and we didn't know? What role did we play? Are we a savior? Are we a detractor that first that a detractor first, but then we start to accept and fall in love? I mean, give us some of all of some good storytelling, a very easy paragraph sketch of that. That's the first step. And then once you get that paragraph together, you start saying, what are the visual images that seem to pop up? Certainly their their logo slick, their colors are gonna be parts of that. But, you know, what are they, so we created the Canapolis Intimidators. They were a minor league team that previously were the Piedmont Bow Weevils. (laughs) And they became the Canapolis Intimidators because uh, that famous uh, NASCAR driver, uh, Dale Earnhardt, bought the team and his family bought to the team. And they said, this is baseball and this is the South and we want, you know, we want this all to be true to baseball in the South, but it's it's absolutely part of who we are as a racing team. And that's why they renamed the, the team to the Canapolis Intimidators. And then our job was to help them create a character. Well, the character ended up being named, and through this whole process, the character ended up being named Dub. And I'll give you one quick shot, Meg. Why would we call him Dub in the South? 
Oh gosh, I'm gonna I'm gonna betray my um, my Pacific Northwest roots by having to express some regional ignorance here. I don't know why. Uh, do you, Do you have a guess, Ben? I don't. Okay, so in Southern drawl, I say, "Hey, we're gonna get a W today. Ah. We're gonna get a win." So oh, dub. So dub. <laughs> so that's how it started. Well, you know, W is a win, and in racing, you know, uh, somewhere within. Dale Earnhardt's team, we, 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 we've had a few dubs, so it's dub. And then we created his face, or I, you know, I didn't, our designers created a face that looked like an old Chevy. It had a, his, his cheeks were kind of, you know, bumped out like the old classic Chevy grill. Um, he had a nose, we, we gave him two Fanatic-esque tongues, um, and he wore racing boots, and then the team's jersey. And then you just have to continue to treat it like it's a living, breathing entity, and um, there's, they're based on the story. There's some sponsorships that they would be right for, but there would be other sponsorships, you know, uh, beer distributors, um, you know, any other type of environment where that character probably wouldn't go. Um, you don't take the money from those sponsors, even though they might like to support the character. So, and and uh, the Phillies over the years have probably left millions and millions of dollars on the table by not saying yes to something that just didn't make sense for the fanatic to be connected to. And it, and it's beautiful because I think. You know, he's 45, going on 46 years since he came from the Galapagos Islands and found Veteran Stadium. And he's going to be there for, uh, I think, hundreds of years, hundreds of years. As long as we're still on this planet, I believe the Fanatic will be in Philadelphia. I don't want to make you um, speak ill of any of your clients or the characters that they have endorsed, but I wonder if there are any mascots that stand out to you as notable failures and what about them missed the mark to the point that, you know, they were not able to come out of that period of everyone hating them <laughs> to to everyone then flipping around and loving them. I, I will tell you our first huge mistake early in our career was we, uh, there were some of my, my minor league baseball uh, contacts, good friends of mine that got involved in ownership and um, and decision-making in the, with the New Orleans Saints. And, and we created a a character that was based on uh, New Orleans um, myths and and voodoo and uh, and all of those things. And the character was uh, and it was a fantasy character. And honest to God, I'm telling you right now, I'm blanking on the name. So I think that's my that's my uh, survival instinct kicking in because it was such a, a bad memory. And it just got destroyed by the fans. Um, but rightfully so, there was no real reasoning behind it except for a little bit of the you know the the voodoo background, which which we discovered because we were kind of doing it on our own. We didn't know the questions to ask at the time. This is probably in 2001, I'm thinking, right after we started. And uh, it, it crashed and burned, and um, they ended up creating a dog. Um, I, I, and I, I think that dog is still there, but I, I, I just, again. <laughs> but it was a horrible failure, and we learned so much from that, that it can't be about what we like or what we think is cute you got to go and and understand from your client and i think that you know my my friends from minor league baseball were not born and bred in new orleans either and i think you know the the ownership was felt like a little bit like an outsider and they never really established that connection and that you know those that leadership was gone a few years after we created this character and and so it was just there's so many of them out there that are that have made some major mistake either in just making What's it? And throw it out there and go, wee, here we go. And then not treating a performer like an important part of the process. 
Okay, come on in. Who wants to do this? Let me check. You got a heartbeat? Okay, you're in. No training. <laughs> you know, all of these things that over time we've learned is so important. Um, but it all comes from the organization not believing that this really is important. They, what they've invested in is the thought of silly, wacky, furry. And that's it. Just, well, it just needs to be silly, wacky, and furry, and that's all it needs. And then when we're done with the costume, we're going to throw it in the corner over there and let it sit till the next person with a heartbeat comes in to put it on. It, there, are, there are so many, so many characters like that being tried and tested, but they, they generally lose very quickly because they haven't been built for any su- sort of sustainability. They, ha- they haven't given the foundation they need to survive. And those are, you know, back in the early days in 2000, we were taking on organizations that were clearly showing us they didn't care about it, you know, but we were new. So we were, but the beauty in all of those failures where we were learning, okay, we're not, those are the clients. When we start seeing and hearing this, um, or we don't have leadership in the room and everybody's nodding their head like, oh yeah, this is going to be great. Uh, but they have nobody in leadership was invested in it. We just wouldn't take those those jobs. And I'm I'm so fortunate today and blessed now that, you know, I, I'm basically vetting my client as much as they're vetting me. Um, and I'll say, well, maybe we're not right for you. Um, <laughs> which to any new business is one of the greatest tricks of of sales to get somebody interested in you. Is as soon as they, you knock on their door and they say hello and you start talking and after five minutes you go, you know what, I've made a mistake. I, I don't think you're right for us. <laughs> wait, what do you mean? What do you mean? Wait, wait, what do you, wait, I, wait, stop, come back. <laughs> so, but you've got to have a lot of guts to do that. Yeah. Well, well speaking of that, I, I was going to bring up that I, I think one of our favorite failed mascots or at least short-lived mascots is Dandy, the former Yankees mascot who we have marveled and or cringed at a few times. Terrifying, and terrifying. Wasn't totally dandy's fault that he was retired because he kind of looked like thurman munson and then thurman munson died and it was just bad timing for for dandy obviously but but the yankees still don't have a mascot they're one of the few holdouts in mlb the yankees the dodgers the angels so sort of a two-parter here do you think that any team would benefit from a mascot or are there certain teams where it might actually not be beneficial to the brand it's just uh, too late it's not in keeping with the team's image and then on the other side of the spectrum, there's been a kind of mascot creep where you have teams, and I don't, I'm not responding to creepy mascots or creepy people inside the mascots. I just mean more and more mascots. The Reds, as we discussed recently, have four or more mascots. You know, there are teams that I just wonder whether there are diminishing returns, whether you're diluting or impeding the attachment with any one mascot, if there are several, and that leads to kind of confusion. So what's the ideal number of mascots, and is it ever zero? I mean, the, the law of diminishing returns is, is, is scientific fact. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you can, especially if you're diluting it with, with um, characters that haven't been thought through and are not valued. And, and I won't bury the lead. I will tell you, I believe every single brand of any kind could, we could help them. It has to be a collaboration. They ha- you know, I, I can't do it on my own. But if they were invested and believed in it, we could create a great character brand for them. No question, no question we could do it. And are, are you feel familiar with the term BHAG in terms of goals? Mm-mm. It's, it's a, an acronym for Big, Hairy, Audacious Goal. And, mm. and it's, it's not hairy because it has anything to do with mascots. It's just, <laughs> it is from the Gazelles brand and a wonderful um, company that helps uh, organizations uh, decide what their five-year picture is going to be. And, and so the BHAG is an important one. So our, our first one was, well, Disney will buy from us. 
You know, that will be so good that Disney will buy from us. And and the other one was, we're going to create the, a, the greatest character for a mortician ever. We're going to put fun in funerals. You know, so we, because we believe that every brand, and I, and, and I, I do believe that about a funeral. There was a funeral company in Philadelphia, unknowingly what our BHAG was, did a commercial, said we put the fun in funerals, and it was for alternative funerals, families of somebody who had passed, who lived a long life and was just a huge fan of comedy and, and silliness. And they would make those funerals uh, different, full of whoopee cushions and hand buzzers. And it worked for the right families. That's what I think. This will work. The, the organization has to believe it's an important effort. That's all that I need. So if the Yankees were to come to me tomorrow, and, and I've worked with some New York brands, um, I've worked with some LA brands and helped them at least consider the concept. And and one of those actually introduced a character that that is, I think, thriving now. So it can work. It just, you know, they, it, I think in New York's case, and and it's fair, is that the, there is this um, belief that it's the greatest city on the planet, especially by the people who live there. And and they do have, you know, how they're the, one of the few cities that has multiple major league sports teams uh, in all of the major sports organizations. Um, and they've, you know, I, if I have to hear 28 world championships one more time, I'm going to, I'm going to slap myself because we're from Philadelphia. So we live in the shadow of the Big Apple. Only 27. We don't need to give them oh, any extras. I thought extras. it was 28. Yeah. I, thought two, I, thought 2000, <laughs> I thought 2009 against the Phillies was 28. I, I think it's still 27. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. You're very nice and kind, Ben. I appreciate it. I feel just as bad, but I, I appreciate the event. So I think, I think any character, yes, any there could be a great character brand for any organization, but the the simple fact is, the leadership has to believe it's the right thing to do. And there is a lot of fear, I think, in the Dodgers. In, and I would say fear, not that they're, you know, frightened of this every day. But when it's brought up, there's fear of the Dodgers, there's fear of the Yankees and um, of the Brooklyn Nets and all these other uh, handful of teams that don't have characters. They go, well, we don't want to make a misstep. We don't want to make this a mess. And why do we really need it? And ultimately, the why do we really need it comes up with, and hey, we don't need it. And, and they're probably right. But, I, but my answer is still the same. We could collaborate to help create a great character brand for any of those organizations. But, but like the Flyers, they would have to have a change in leadership or ownership. And there need to be the transference. Um, and you, you know, new people come in, new ideas, and they say, look, we just don't want to do this anymore. We don't want to lose this opportunity anymore. And that becomes the, you know, the uh, defining moment to say, we're going to do this. And before we let you go, I want to ask a couple questions about performing. I guess it would have been more appropriate to start there since that's where you started, but we will end there instead. I think people are always curious about what it's like inside the suit, right? And there's a perception that it's very hot and it's sweaty and it's uncomfortable and it's cumbersome and it's bulky. And I just wonder how should it smell in there and how does it actually smell in practice and how much have mascot ventilation and hygiene and comfort improved since the 70s? Yeah, I well, look, it physically, let's talk about that real quick. It's a crucible. Mm -hmm. um, I've been an athlete my whole life. Back in the day when the NCAA allowed double practices where you were practicing early in the morning, say getting on the field around six o'clock in the morning, practicing for two hours, going to have something to eat, taking a nap, going back and, and having another two hour practice from five until seven and doing that for 12 straight days. 
I've never thought I would ever run anything more physically challenging than that in preseason, but it's it's that plus. There's been nothing like it. So there are a, a, a rare few that can handle that crucible and then get to the point where they accept that pain because they're used to it. And once that critical moment happens, then they start to see the value. And I say this to everybody, imagine if your job was just to show up and when you did, everybody around you felt better. No matter what was going on in their lives, they felt better. And they are hugging you, whether you like it or not, taking pictures with you, and then hashtag brushes with greatness, and <laughs> um, and people constantly yelling, I love you. Mm-hmm. Imagine what that would be like daily. So if you move the physical part out of it, you get used to it, you get in shape, then that's all you're seeing every time you put the costume on. And yes, it's tiring and the costume smells so you have to clean it you you spray it with vodka and water that works that you don't have to buy febreze or anything else you have to wash it occasionally you don't want to wash it too often enough to keep it so it doesn't smell bad and you have to do all those things every job you've ever had no matter how much you love it has things about it you don't like but the most amazing part of this and this is you know when i retired from the phillies people said you know do you miss it and i tell them immediately i don't miss the physicality although it's kept me in shape all these years. <laughs> understand it. I mean, people say, wow, I'm, I'm 67. And people look at me and go, gosh, you don't look like you're 67. I said, well, if you come along a journey with me and for 27 years, because after the Phillies, I continue to perform, <laughs> um, you know, you'll be in great shape. But I love the performance. And so I'd say, I miss the fans and I miss the performance. But, you know, in, in the world that I live in, in keynote speaking, I get to perform again. And then I get to use the best not of nonverbal and the best of verbal. And I'm telling people what the fanatic has to offer all of us to, to be emotionally happier and healthier. And that's, you can design, you don't need to be in a costume. You can design this effort, this performance into being kind and recognizing gratitude and, and talking to people, ask them questions and listening to what they have to say. And it, it is a secret um, that people have right under their, their noses um, that they just need to be aware of that, you know, to, to be the fanatic or to be any of these characters, you're engaging in the most wonderful process to connect to people on an emotional level, make them feel valued, give them a moment of joy. And we can we can do this every day and you know, without a costume. And so the beauty of my the change in my career is that I get to perform again and, and I get to speak to audiences all over the country. And it's and it's all because of the fanatic. And and that's where the real heart and power of of my industry is, is that. Each one of these characters, if they're done well, are doing that in their community every single day. And we, we just have to look at that and go, hey, wait, wait, I can do that. I just need to pay attention to my kids a little bit more. I got to ask them how their day was. I got to tell them how much I love them. I got to give them a hug. We got to take silly pictures and keep them, you know, in our digital albums. And it's, it's, it's really um, been so wonderful. I've been so blessed because there isn't a day that doesn't go by where somebody doesn't find out what I did in my career and say, oh my gosh, right. that's the greatest thing in the world. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, th- that's so heartwarming that I feel guilty asking this question. <laughs> but, but in the, the Times piece, you know, you talk about just the emotional connection and how the mascot is sort of a symbol of the team, but kind of brings the team and the fan base together. And, you know, 
the fans are inviting you to come in and hug and interact physically with a piece of the team. And we're saving one possible form of physical interaction with the mascot for the After Dark podcast. But another form, in addition to all the hugs and the smiles and the selfies and so forth, occasionally someone will decide to interact physically with a mascot in a potentially harmful way. We talked earlier this season about Dinger, the Rockies mascot, just getting assaulted, just getting tackled on top of the dugout. And I wonder whether there are some pranksters or some legitimately ill-willed people who take the armor that one is wearing as a mascot as sort of a license for violence to say that I could just get a shot in at this guy, whoever's in there. I won't have to look in their face. (laughs) Maybe they won't feel it. It's funny to attack the mascot that everyone else is hugging. How often does that happen and how do you deal with it? Well, it's great. This is this is another life lesson, uh, Ben and Meg. Everywhere you go, there is 10% stupidity factor going on. And the reason why I know that, and most of us know it, is that we have at one point in our lives or another been in that 10% stupidity factor. So, well, the, and, and, and we all continue to slide back into it from time to time. And so some of it has to do, some of it's amplified by the fact that there's alcohol involved, there's, you know, sure. some drugs that might be involved. So you, you lose, those people might lose the the concept of what's right and wrong for a moment. Um, but I would say ill will against the fanatics. So let's talk, I mean, there were all kinds of bumps and bruises and players that did things to me. Um, and I would say 95% of it was a compliment because they actually thought that I was a live furry <laughs> being that could not be hurt. <laughs> and they were just, you know, they were just doing, hey, let's see if the cartoon character can be tossed off this dugout. Um, and, and he, oh, he bounces. Look at that. So, I mean, I, I think that a lot of it, 95% of it was not ill will. Mm-hmm. 5%, yeah, there was some ill will. But then I'm giving him credit because it was usually ill will from an opposing fan base. <laughs> the Mets yeah. fans being the toughest for me. Um, and, you know, and I'm willing to accept that because I think it's done out of passion. Uh, overwhelmingly, though, it, 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 there is, it is a safe environment. Overwhelmingly, people are really kind, especially when you're doing a good job in entertaining them. I love telling the story about Mets fans in general, many of them. But my favorite one is, um, and I'll clean it up. Hey, you big fat thing, get the F out of my way. And as the fanatic responds the way he should slumps his shoulders and starts to walk away because people will then boo the Mets fan for yelling at the fanatic but then they'll say wait wait wait, hold on come over here and take a picture with my kids first and then get the heck out of the way (laughs) so (laughs) you know it's really they recognize the value but you know you're representing you know the opposition so there's a lot of um, emotion caught up in that but you know 95% wasn't ill will it was just people believing so much the fanatic was was real and that, you know, I was a pretty good athlete. So players would see me throw and catch and they would think I could catch their fastball. But meanwhile, a a gloved hand, I don't, I have like what amounts to a gardening glove on my (laughs) hand. So I'm no protection, protection when they, when somebody like uh, Pena, the the, uh, catcher for the, for the pirates would think that I could just, you know, catch anything. So, you know, I I took that as a compliment, but um, I think overall, it's just my attitude that, you know, people, um, you know, want to do something that's funny and they don't realize that it's really could be physically harmful. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's not true foghorn, leghorn or the coyote and, and you know, and, and the um, roadrunner. It's, it, it is, it's true life. So I just figured, hey, I did such a good job. They actually thought I was a cartoon character. 
right? We got one listener question who wanted to know what do performers' best friends do with their face inside the suit? Are you animated in that you're dancing and you're goofing around and you're maybe smiling because it helps get into character, but you don't have to be smiling because the suit is smiling. So do you, does your face get tired or are you just not feeling so happy inside there some days and maybe you're just a completely stone-faced inside the suit as uh, the mascot is is happily taking pictures with children? Yeah, I think that's, um, it's a great question and, and one they get asked often. I think that having a camera inside a character's face to see the performer would be a really wonderful study. But uh, as and I, I teach and train people to be good in costume, and I I actually have an exercise where I put them in front of a mirror without a costume on, and I say I give them what a neutral expression pose is with hands just at the side, standing normally upright, and then I want them to get happy with their body, and, and I'll go one through five, five being the happiest, and I'll say, but your face can't reflect any happiness at all. And then I reverse it and do it the other way. I want your face to be happy and I don't want your body to show it. And it's impossible. And that's the whole point of the exercise. If you mm-hmm. want your character to look happy, you've got to be smiling at the biggest, goofiest grin that you can possibly uh, maximize facially through your muscles because that connects to your brain. Your brain is thinking that you're happy and you can fake a smile and your body will respond in kind. And that's the way to get your body in a position. So, yes, all those pictures taken of the fanatic, Dave Raymond, the best friend, was smiling like a goofball <laughs> to, to get the fanatic looking like he was smiling like the fanatic would smile. So, you know, it's it's impossible to have one without the other. So and no one can see you. So why do you have to worry about whether you look or feel goofy? And it is constantly the new performers that come into my mascot boot camp will say, I feel like such an idiot. And I go, what do you think? Well, I'm smiling all the time and nobody can see me. I go, no, they can see you. They just can't see your face, that your character. Look, look at the picture. You, you try to do a smile pose where you're not smiling. Let me take a, a, a still shot of your character. Then you smile and you will see a difference in that character's posture and the way. And, and truly, no matter what the expression of the character costume is, people will swear that the character is smiling, um, mm-hmm. which is tough when you're a shark and you've got these nasty teeth, <laughs> teeth bearing shark look on your face and say, Oh, look, he's smiling, <laughs> but it, but it actually works. Um, and, and I think getting the performers to know that you, you need to use your face to get your body to do what you want it to do non-verbally. Well, that leads me to maybe my last question, which is about scouting potential performers, AKA best friends, and you train them, but it sounds like you had all the tools right as a, a performer prospect because you were a self-described wise ass, <laughs> you know, you like to climb around and your mother was deaf, the times piece mentioned. So you had a lot of experience with gesturing and expressing yourself non-verbally. So can you scout someone as a potential best friend, blue chip best friend, or is it something that has to be taught? Is it always evident outside the suit that someone would make a good mascot? Or do some people kind of come alive and have the the freedom to perform only when they're inside the suit? How much of that is nature versus nurture? Well, I, th- I think, well, I think it's, uh, we, we have a profile. Um, and the profile includes things like um, you have some creative endeavor that, that you love to do and you're good at. So sketching, drawing, painting, photography, um, music, a- any type of expression, um, creative expression is a good little bullet point that if you have that in your background, we, we like it. Uh, um, what type of an athlete 
were you? Were you physically competent in any sport? That's a good, because you have uh, awareness of self. You've got um, great um, eye-hand coordination. That's all really great. Um, then, uh, you know, have you acted before? Where have you acted? What did you do? Um, what type of acting training have you had? Uh, do you love to dance or do you need liquid courage to be able to dance? Um, you know, all of these things that we would run. So there's people that don't know it. If they start getting a lot of these bullet point checks from our profile, they probably could be a really good character performer. Th then you have to bring them in and make sure they're not frightened of, of physicality. And that's why the athletics comes in. Um, they, they're not afraid of being in enclosed places or, or, um, or not being able to breathe the same way they breathe. Uh, and if they can overcome all of those physical uh, um, um, barriers, then they could really be uh, great at this. And yes, training helps. I, I was um, so blessed to be on a podcast with Jason Alexander from, uh, or, or as everybody would like to say, I got to sit and talk to George Costanza. I had, this was just a few weeks ago, I was on his podcast, Really No Really, and he was talking about how, one, he said, watching The Fanatic, there was, there's so much um, wonderful talent in there that your timing was great. And, of course, that was nice to hear from somebody that I re respect and ad admired for years because of his work. But then he said, I, you wouldn't surprise you that, that I, you know, teach acting. And I've got people that walk into my door and say, nope, get out. I can't teach anything. I'm only going to screw you up. You know, and, and, and that realization when people come in the door that I know this person after the first day, they just need encouragement. Tell them to play music, tell them to dance as much as they can. They're great. Tell them how good they are at it naturally and let them grow into the physicality of it. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, there's people where I go, Josh, they're just not really going to be good at this. But I try to encourage them and show them what they're doing well. Um, and I do know the beauty of that is if they still continue to pursue something that fundamentally as a performer they're not good at they're learning so many great skill sets whether it's video editing uh, music editing the understanding of event production uh, game operations they're learning all these skill sets that even if they don't make it in costume they on their resume that they've had this training and they did this work would be is attractive to somebody who's hiring them in that environment so because there's all just like any other you know the, of the greatest performers there's only a few opportunities that pay six-figure salaries and that are full-time jobs and that they get to work for, you know, the best uh, sports brands in the business. It, there's not that many opportunities for that, but there is a wonderful opportunity to learn uh, about the, how to communicate and connect. And, um, and the natural skill of me communicating non-verbally because my mom went deaf, went from a hearing woman to a deaf woman when I was three and she was 29. And you know, they, her audiologist and the people helping her with her hearing aids was saying, you know, that Susie, you have to be in front of people. You have to be able to read their lips and, the, and this hearing aid will amplify sound. So as a three-year-old, I was told I had to get in front of my mom and that I had to communicate that way with my mom. And then I realized I could make my mom laugh and smile if I was silly. And um, it wasn't until just a few years ago. My mom used to tell me when, when media folks would ask me if I felt that was part of my success. And I would poo-poo it because I thought I was taking advantage of, of my mom's deafness in some odd way. And then I would go home and tell my mom, she goes, oh no, David, three years old, you've been dancing around, doing, being silly. Now you're getting paid for it. I'm, I'm thrilled. Um, you know, so there are people that have a natural ability to do these things. And I'm able to, to recognize that right away, just minutes into their costume performance when I, I have a bunch of drills that I put them through first to see how good they are. And, and we, can, we do this all online now, too. We, we have an asynchronous 
boot camp where then people connect with me afterwards and send me video. And I can I can see right away, oh gosh, this this person could really be good at this. But we're it's a very small industry, so um, mm-hmm. where will they be honing their craft and will they be able to make a living doing it? That's that's always the tough part. But enjoying it and having a good time and working in their community doing cool things, that that has great value too. Right. Yeah. It's like being a broadcaster. There are only so many jobs, right? Mm-hmm. So you, you need every team to have as many mascots as the Reds, and then there will be more <laughs> positions for everyone, I guess. Yeah, That'd be some, good for your business, too. So Recruit some, some buff <laughs> theater kids. <laughs> right, yes. Well, thanks so much for talking to us today. Before we start recording it, we don't do this podcast over video, so I'm always self-conscious about saying nice to meet you to someone when mm-hmm. I'm not seeing them and I'm not in their presence. But I said that to you, and then I said, well, it's probably not that different from if I were talking to you when you were in character as a mascot. And then you noted that, well, if you were in character, then you would not be talking at all. And then you'd be a terrible podcast guest. So you've been yeah, I wouldn't be much better to talk to than than Gritty or the Fanatic. I appreciate the podcasts that don't have the video element because I'm I'm sitting here in my in my uh, my sweat. Yes, that's why we that's why we don't do it. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I probably could use a shower just as if I had been performing. So all, yep. of course that wouldn't be translated across video, but you might get the you might get the idea. <laughs> looking the way I look. So, uh, yeah, I appreciate that. I, and I do want to say, I, I just absolutely love what you two are doing. I, I think the podcast industry as a whole is just such a, a wonderful, creative platform. Um, but, you know, the the conversations that you two have had and, and the topics you're talking about, um, and they certainly resonate with me because I ath- athletics has been my entire life. Um, but I love what you're doing, and I, I appreciate it, and you guys are both really good at it. It's comfortable. It's easy to listen to, um, and and I just want to tell you how much I appreciate that work. Well, mm. thanks so much. That yeah, means thank a you. lot coming from the Jane Goodall of Mass. <laughs> I really appreciate that. I've got that down. That's, I'm going right to my website. And I'm <laughs> really, yeah, I mean, you know, other than uh, who's given more to mascot dumb than you? I, obviously, there's a Jim Henson influence there yeah. who was consulted on The Fanatic and Bonnie Erickson, who was the former head of the Muppet Workshop, who, who designed Miss Piggy and The Fanatic. So you see that sort of Hensonian legacy when it comes to many mascot designs. And but one of the most brilliant. One of the most brilliant creative people I've ever met, Bonnie, uh, is 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 was and is, um, you know, a genius in that regard. So um, it was a, it was a pleasure to get to know her and and work with her and and um, and a piece of the, a piece of her is in the fanatic as well. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned your website. You have multiple websites that we could direct people to. There is the website for Raymond Entertainment, which is RaymondDG.com. We could also direct people to Dave Raymond Speaks if you want him to speak to you the way that he has been speaking to us. That's DaveRaymondSpeaks.com. And of course, I mentioned the book, The Power of Fun. And then there's the Mascot Hall of Fame, which we hardly addressed, but people can check out the MascotHallOfFame.com where voting is ongoing now for the 2023 Mascot Scott Class. The MLB candidates include Wally the Green Monster and Slugger of the Portland Sea Dogs. And of course, you are not only the founder of the Mascot Hall of Fame, but I suppose a founding member. Do you consider yourself a, a Mascot Hall of Famer or is the Fanatic a Hall of Famer or is there a performer's wing? Or No, no, the Fanatic is 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 a, is a separate and distinct entity from me. But I, yeah. it's like you look at them and I and I, I just feel there there is some of my uh, my blood, sweat, and tears inside of him, but uh, it's still an an honor to see a character that you've been vo- involved in 
seriously inducted. I mean, it's, we have a lot of fun and silliness at the Mascot Hall of Fame. I mean, that's what it's about. But but it's a it, uh, believe it or not a rigorous process. I'm I'm also an executive committee member. So yeah, did you have to recuse yourself from the the fanatic consideration? <laughs> well, back then things were a little loose. I mean, we we yeah. kind of put this together in a whim, and we we inducted the fanatic, the chicken. And the uh, Phoenix Gorilla on the first class because we thought nobody would argue with that until I yeah, saw could... so until I saw Kornheiser and Wilbon <laughs> argue about well, it. And I'm like, oh my god, who could quibble with the fanatic? That's not favoritism, I think. So, thank you very much, David. It's been great talking to you. My pleasure, guys. Thank you. Have a great week. Well, I almost can't believe this, but our patented, effectively wild, career-resuscitating powers worked with unprecedented speed this time. As Meg and I were talking about Trey Turner's slow start, he had had three plate appearances in the game on Wednesday. He was 0 for 3, he came up again in the 7th, he struck out, he was getting booed, and then in the bottom of the ninth, he hits a game-tying two-run home run, and the Phillies go on to win in 10. So this time, the podcast powers took two plate appearances for him to go from goat to hero. That almost can't be beaten. Phillies manager Rob Thompson said that was big. Maybe that's his signature moment that gets him going here. Little does he know that what actually got him going was us bantering about him in a then unpublished podcast. So now we'll see if he stays hot. All right. I've got a pass blast for you, which comes to us as usual from David Lewis, an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. It also comes to us today from 2011. David writes, the NCAA cracks down on bats. In 2011, in an attempt to combat high scoring averages and avoid potentially dangerous line drives, the NCAA updated its regulations on bats that could be used in collegiate baseball games. The new rule outlawed the use of composite bats, opting instead for more standardized aluminum models that featured smaller sweet spots. Officials hoped that aluminum bats within the new standard would perform similarly to wood bats. The change was in part motivated by explosive offensive numbers seen in the game in preceding years. Between 2007 and 2010, average runs scored per game rose from 6.1 to 6.98. Another more pressing motivation for changing the bats was player safety. Balls jumped off of the composite bats in a trampoline-like fashion, not leaving pitchers enough time to get out of the way of a line drive hit up the middle. Probably pretty dangerous for birds, too. After a year at the collegiate level, David continues, the rule was to be applied to high school baseball in 2012. And this banning of composite bats had the intended effect. In fact, if anything, it worked a little too well. This was an attempt to stem the tide of offense that started rising in 1974 when aluminum bats were introduced. But in that first year that composite bats were banned, the home run rate was almost halved from 1.88 per game to 1.04 per game. And then it kept sinking. So by 2014, the rate was at an all-time low, 0.78 home runs per game. So at that point, the NCAA intervened to send things back in the other direction. Up until 2015, the college ball had higher seams than the pro ball, so it was higher drag, didn't carry as well. Then in 2015, they switched to a flatter seamed baseball that was closer to the one that they used in the minors. And since then, offense has been climbing. By 2019, it was sort of settling in at about a homer and a half per game. But since then, it spiked again. Reading an Axios piece from earlier this month that noted that the rate was 2.25 homers per game, which was the highest ever. So now more homerific and offense friendly than it was even before they banned the composite bats. So we're sort of right back in the same situation. Maybe aside from some of the safety concerns, the Axios piece says improved bat technology again might have something to do with the home run rise, but it says the most logical reason for the home run boom likely stems from two COVID-related changes. In the wake of the pandemic, the NCAA granted athletes an extra year of eligibility, and MLB reduced its draft from 
20 rounds to five, yielding a glut of MLB prospects and 50-year seniors in Division One. Those better, more experienced players would likely be out of college under normal circumstances. Instead, they're helping fuel this historic surge in dingers. Of course, some of those players are presumably pitchers, but maybe older, stronger players leads to more homers. I'm not a college baseball expert, but I'm sure we'll talk about this when the draft rolls around. Two notes on recent comments. Last time I made an offhand comment about Jan Gomes's hitting prowess. This came up when we were talking about Gomes, quote unquote, sacrificing a chicken to revive his bat in 2016. I said something about him maybe not having sacrificed enough chickens in his career. However, I impugned Jan Gomes. He's been a pretty good hitter for a catcher. From 2012 to 2023, the span of his career, the average catcher in Major League Baseball has had an 89 WRC+. Jan Gomes has a career 91 WRC+. So he's not a good hitter compared to the league, but he is above the baseline for catchers and he's had some good offensive years. Also, in a recent pass blast when Zach Hampel, the famous slash notorious ball hawk, came up, I said something about his reputation for pushing kids out of the way as he tries to catch balls. One listener wrote in to note that that's not confirmed. It hasn't been documented. It's something people say about him. A lot of people don't love his ball hawking activities, but it's true. I can't claim to have seen that happen or seen any well-documented example of it happening. And regardless of whom we're discussing, I do endeavor to be fair. You can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves access to some perks. Brendan Comstock, Matthew Killian, David Kim, Jason Lee, and Tyrone Palmer. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group, where you too can point out when I have underrated Jan Gomes's bat and talk about lots of other fun stuff too. You also get access to playoff live streams and monthly bonus episodes, plus discounts on merch and ad-free Fangraphs memberships and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. You can also email us at podcast at Fangraphs.com. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. David Raymond, by the way, is on there also at Emperor of Fun. And you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance and his suggestion to talk to David Raymond. We will be back with one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then. Hosted by Ben